genuinely that after reading this book, it made me want to be outside more. His simple appreciation, the way he notices the birds and the way he notices these things. If I take a walk at night, I look for owls. And then once you see an owl, then you want to see more owls. I think it definitely has changed my perspective of what I would like to do and where I would like to go. Book Society. Hello. Our guest today is Rush Choma. He is a reporter. He started an alternate student newspaper as a freshman in college called the Muhlenberg Advocate. With the investigative reporting workshop, he wrote an investigative series called Blown Away, where he found that the majority of jobs created by Obama's green stimulus went overseas. So that's not great. He's a staff writer at Mother Jones, where he covers money and politics, which means that he writes all the juiciest and craziest and coolest stories. I'm looking forward to hearing what else being a reporter about money and politics means for you living as you do in Washington, D.C., and I'm sure you have some interesting stories. Russ, you are our first reporter on the podcast. I'm really excited to have you. And you chose Edwin Way Teal's Wandering Through Winter, a book I had never heard of and had a difficult time getting my hands on. It was beautiful. It's a wonderful book, and everyone, I think, should read it. Edwin Way Teal's Wandering Through Winter is part of a four-part series that Edwin Way Teal wrote, which were driving around the United States in different seasons. He starts with North with the Spring, Journey into the Summer, Autumn Across America, hands down the best title, and Wandering Through Winter. And this one, Wandering Through Winter, was published in 65, but won a Pulitzer in 66. This is not a frivolously chosen book. It is a very much lauded book that I think has been largely forgotten. And I'm glad we can rectify that today. I was a little reluctant to choose it because it's not necessarily easy to get a hold of. My copy was like a library discard. It was a book that was once very prevalent and your average library did have it. After a certain point when you don't check out books enough from the library, the library discards them. When I read it, I was completely surprised by it. And it's not a perfect book, but it was one of the more interesting books I've read. But there are many books that are like, this book really changed my life or something. But this is one of the books I read where it surprised me the most and it was really something I hadn't imagined. And the more I read about it, the more I thought about it, I realized it really is important in terms of environmental writing. And you know, now the topic of environmentalism is much more accepted and commonplace. I mean, in 1965, when this was written, the idea that you would save the environment was not necessarily something that a lot of people believed. I mean, like, why would you do that? There's endless resources. In a lot of ways, it's a really special book. So I read three of the four books. The only one I haven't read is The Autumn Across America. I have a copy of it, but it is also one of those books where I feel like I couldn't read four of them in a row. So I spaced them out. (laughs) And every year or two, I'll read the next one. And I think it's also a good one to do in season. It hadn't really occurred to me. I think this is a perfect one to do. When did you first read it? Probably in about 2013 or 2014. And the way I came across it was as a reporter, I spend a lot of time writing and reading every day. And as a reporter in Washington, I'm surrounded by people who write books. There's always a new book about policy, about politics, about an election, about journalism. You know, journalists love to write about journalists. And I found myself really not enjoying a lot of the things I was reading. I don't enjoy a lot of contemporary fiction. And I think partly being a journalist, the way I think about a story is tell the story the best you can and tell it directly. Sometimes with contemporary fiction, I get very frustrated. The author who's being very artistic, but is not getting to the point. (laughs) That sort of frustrates me sometimes. So I read a lot of nonfiction, but I found myself when I was reading nonfiction, I was picking books that I thought I should read. The book that everyone was talking about, the book that's about 
the important figure of the moment or the book that's about the important policy of the moment. And I remember reading a book about green energy and it was written by someone I know and it was an important book. It's a worthwhile book. The guy's a great guy. He's a great writer. And I was just like, you know, this is not relaxing. This is not something I want to do for fun. I don't know how it happened, but I was on Wikipedia and I came across the Pulitzer Prize page. As a journalist, I think about the Pulitzer Prizes a lot. And I think that what probably happened was I was looking at the list of people who'd won the Pulitzer Prize for news writing or feature writing or investigative writing. And then I noticed that they had a category for general nonfiction. They also have one for poetry. And I think they have one for plays too. They have one for music too. Yeah. And a lot of people don't think of those. I think that the Pulitzer Prize for nonfiction is not the ultimate prize. I think it is actually like a big deal. But I looked at the Wikipedia page and as I was scrolling down, I realized that of the books that were on there that I had read, they were some of my favorite books and some of my favorite authors, and some of the things are topical and some of them aren't. And I thought, well, this is like a good list of things to read. And so I started going and some of the more modern books I had, some of them I had read. So going through it, I wanted to find some of these older books. I know at some point it came down to, I'd go and I'd look up a book and a lot of the books were out of print. And so I found this one fairly early on. I'd never heard of it. And I thought, well, I'll give it a shot. And I started reading it and I was blown away by it. I haven't read all the books that have won a Pulitzer Prize yet, but I have the list printed out. And when I need a book, I go to it. This was one of the ones that was like an early favorite. The idea behind it, the one for spring, North of the Spring, he started in Key West on the first day of spring. And he and his wife drove north slowly and they got to Maine on the first day of summer. So they observed how the seasons change up and down the East Coast throughout the season. And I think the book was very popular. And so then they did a summer one and then they did a fall one. and then. Finally, they did this one. I think that when he won the Pulitzer Prize, it was a recognition for the entire series. With this one, you know, he starts on the West Coast and he sort of meanders east until he gets up to Maine and then he finally gets back to his house in Connecticut. The seasons aren't changing quite like it does with the spring. Like in the spring one, it's really cool because as he drives north, it's spring and the keys all the time. And then, you know, as you move up and you get to North Carolina, spring starts a little bit later in Virginia and everything. So it's a really cool concept. But this one, he just goes to like all these different types of places in America and observes winter. There are very, very specific environmental things that happen in San Diego in the winter. In this case, it starts with the gray whale watching, observing the great whales migrating is when you get up to Maine where it's a winter, (laughs) winter as you might know it. I think through this process of trying to find better books to read, I started thinking about what sort of books I like. Personally, I'm interested in environmentalism and I like biographies and I like autobiographies and I like travel books. And this sort of has a combination of all those things. And a lot of environmentalist books can get preachy or depressing. He has like a strong voice and I think he works hard to not be intrusive with his voice. He's appropriate with his voice, but he's not overly sort of intrusive. Also, you know, the other thing about this is he goes with his wife, Nellie, and he talks about her and she's just like faithful sidekick. I don't think he sells her short. I think she gives her a lot of credit. They had a son who died in World War II. All the books are dedicated to him. And I think that these books and the traveling, and I think they ended up driving something like 70,000 miles over the course of these four books, just the two of them, largely was like a way of them handling their grief over their son. He read some other books where he stays in one place, but I think the idea is just the two of them going out and seeing some of the beautiful things around the country. It is kind of amazing, but also a little bit of a depressing specter as a writer to think that people who won the Pulitzer Prize in our parents' lifetime, who were household names at the time, are basically forgotten. There are scenes in this book where he and Nellie meet people who recognize them and know their books. Random people in America knew who Edwin Waiteel was and would see him coming around with his wife and know who they were. And he's all but forgotten now. 
things have changed a little bit. He definitely wasn't like a self-promoter or anything like that. I think that what it takes to become a successful author these days has changed. And maybe that's part of the charm of it. Definitely part of the charm of the book is that it takes place on the cusp of different eras. And he feels like he's someone from a different era, but he's describing a world. And he describes an America that you and I recognize. This is not reading like Lewis and Clark's journals. He's driving in a car. He stays in hotels. But it is written in the years, in some of the places, months before highways. There's one point where they're in Illinois, and I mean, the highway's about to open and they avoid it. But you couldn't recreate this journey that he had. And so he's describing America that we know, sort of a modern America, and he's describing it and sort of talking about, you know, these environmental concerns, which people didn't talk about then, but we talk about now and we recognize now, like the importance of the gray whale and the migratory patterns and preservation and things like that. But he's also describing an America that we can't see anymore because it doesn't exist like this. He sort of feels like that, like he's someone from a different era. And unfortunately, when you read older books now with people from a different era, oftentimes you find things that you don't like about them. <laughs> and you fall back on that, like, well, for a man of his time, he was very good. And I think that Evan Ray Teal stands up to, to modern scrutiny as well. Like, you don't have to say that for a man of his time, but he was a man from a different time. Very, very decent and reasonable. And like I said, when his voice does appear, he does get very passionate about the importance of species and about finding a balance between development and hunting and all those sort of things. He's utterly reasonable. He would be on the right side of the aisle today with some of the things that he thought that were radical back then. So this book was kind of tailor-made for me because it starts in my adopted home and ends where I was born, which is pretty fun for me. And it starts in San Diego and he's watching the whales and he tells a story that I didn't know, which is they discovered this lagoon, which is on the Baja Peninsula now, where all these big whales would go to spawn. And it was the one place on earth where they spawned and they would go into this protected lagoon and some whaler found it and they would just go in there and slaughter them. And that's how they almost became extinct. This is a story that I didn't know and that I'm sure the people at that time didn't know. You know, that doesn't sound like fair or necessary. And maybe we probably don't need to kill all the whales. And it's full of things like that, where he goes somewhere and details some sort of environmental carnage that had happened there that was unnecessary and that people wouldn't necessarily know about. But he isn't heavy handed about it. The thing that stood out to me was somewhere in the middle, he waxes poetic and says, you know, man is often asking, can he do it? But rarely asks, should he do it? And this was in regards to overcoming the wilderness and conquering nature. Right. I think at the time that was a much more revolutionary concept because I think it was still very much in the era of if we can build it, yes, we absolutely should build it. With the highways, yes, we should build them and we should build them everywhere. Not really calculating the destruction, both in terms of nature and in terms of urban destruction. I think also like with that story about the whales, every chapter he's in a new spot. And it's not really detailed on then we drove 150 miles or something like that. There's nothing really about where they stay. They're not really talking about the food or anything like that. But each little spot is like a unique corner that's otherwise hard to find. He was very prominent at the time. He was very active in the Thoreau Society and Audubon and things like that. So I think he had a very good network of contacts. But he also goes along with the adventure when he gets somewhere. He heard someone had trapped a 60-pound beaver. And so he's trying to track down the farmer who did it. And he ends up getting his car stuck in the farmer's yard. And there's just an elderly couple who can't help him. And so he spends the day basically traipsing around in the mud and the rain until he's able to find the farmer. Let's not gloss over the 60-pound beaver. This is the chapter called Giant Beavers. The thing that he's most disappointed in is that he saved the pelt, but then he didn't save the skeleton. Teal really wanted to see the skeleton, and I guess the farmer just threw it to his dogs, and the dogs did something with it. So who knew? And then the chapter right before that is about gigantic catfish. 
he has this really, really interesting knack for finding the strange but fascinating. And he does have this way with words where when you read a lot of environmental books, they can be very preachy, they can be very strident, they can be very activisty, which is not necessarily a bad thing. There's time and place for it, but it does sometimes take away from like the literature value of it, I guess. There's so many bright, bright people who know so much about sciences, but sometimes when they write, it's too dry. He knows the science, but yet he does break into these passages that are just exceptionally well-written. And so he was talented in a variety of ways. This book will definitely make you love America and want to visit all kinds of places that you never would have thought to visit. And it is an environmental book, but I don't think anybody would feel bad after reading it. And you're right that some of those books can be really preachy. And part of the problem with that is who are you trying to convince? Like someone who doesn't care about environmentalism doesn't want to be yelled at. Edwin Waitiel is really, I mean, he wanders through winter and just describes what he sees. And it's amazing. And some of the things in this book, when he was in Southern California, for example, I was reading it and I stopped. He has a few pages about sagebrush and the prevalence of sagebrush and how it smells and how it tastes and all this stuff about it. I just stopped and walked outside because there's sagebrush everywhere where I live. This exact plant that he was describing, he said, yeah, it just lives all over the desert. And it's true. It lives everywhere over here. The parts of Southern California using the principle of how well does he describe the things that I know and then assume that he describes the other things equally well. So have you been to some of the places that he describes? I've been to basically everywhere until he gets to Arizona. I haven't explored too far west of that around here. But a lot of the Sonora cactuses he describes, they're amazing to see. Those are the Looney Tunes cactuses that look like people, and they really are in person even weirder than you would imagine if you haven't seen them. Roadrunners are like, if you watch the Roadrunner cartoons, they're not really an exaggeration. That is kind of what they look like, and it's also sort of how they sound. One thing that he has about roadrunners killing rattlesnakes, which he said was sort of like an urban legend, but that's real. Roadrunners, if they're in a pinch, they will kill a rattlesnake and eat it. Yeah, a lot of these places are not on what became the interstate system. So, I mean, I've only been to like a few of the places that he mentions in this book and in the other books, but I think about these books all the time. And I think I think about it when I read more current environmental or nature-themed books yeah, I think that he did have some influence. I mean, well, he definitely had a lot of influence. And I think Rachel Carson, who wrote Silent Spring, he was close with, and there's a lot of correspondence between the two of them. And I think that you can see the type of thing he did. It'd be fascinating now to follow his exact path or try to follow his exact path and see how things change. And he talks about the gray whales and, for example, how the gray whales, the numbers have declined so precipitously. And one day we hope to have as many as 9,000 of them. And I looked, and now there's 22,000 of them. I mean, the species has rebounded. And so I think in a lot of ways, sometimes when you read this parts of it, you expect like, oh, well, this stuff must all be gone now or things must have actually gotten worse. But I think in no small part because of him and some of the people that came directly after him, things have changed. I think in that sense, he's very much still present. Like I think he was one of the first people to bring the awareness to it. For what it's worth, I think that this is something that I learned moving from the East Coast to the West Coast. But most of what he describes on the West Coast that I've seen is pretty much as he describes it still today, because there's so much room out here. I mean, Arizona is a vast, vast state, and there are many places in Arizona where you could walk for miles in any direction and not hit a road. And it's still like that. There's a lot of federal land. At the same time, I think a lot of the national parks we have today didn't exist when he was traveling. Are you going to read the other books? I don't know. I'll be honest with you. When I started this book, I was kind of like, ah, oh, Jesus. I don't really like to read travel books generally, not for any particular reason. Has not been a genre I got into. Part of the fun of this podcast for me is that I get to read all these different books. It 
turned into a page turner for me. It took a minute. And that's also, I think, a convention of the time that today you expect a book to just grab you and tell you immediately why it deserves your attention. Whereas in 1965, there's four channels on TV, so. <laughs> he sticks with the gimmick he has where he's driving. He doesn't jump ahead. He doesn't go back. Now, you'd probably have an editor or your agent be like, well, you know, you really got to kick it up and <laughs> stick with that concept. But like, let's have some flashbacks or something. That's part of the fun for me reading these books. I knew nothing about it. I just bought it and then cracked it open. So we've been touching on this, but how would you as an editor and a writer describe his style? Definitely has a sense of a narrative arc. He definitely is a storyteller. He was a very big fan of Henry Thoreau and was the president of the Thoreau Society. He wrote other books about Thoreau. I really did not enjoy reading Thoreau. And it's interesting because I think he viewed himself as like, like an heir to that. There was another book a couple of years later that won the Pulitzer, Pilgrim at Tinker Creek, which is an extraordinarily famous environmental book. And that's one which you don't often see anymore, but I think a lot of people recognize it as a seminal sort of book. I can't deal with it. I can't read it. Like, stop philosophizing. And so it's interesting because I think he views himself as more Thoreau-esque. His descriptions are so vivid, but they're not dry. They're lyrical and they're beautiful writing in places that you can see where he's coming from. But then it's also very serious. Like he's a naturalist. He's also telling you these things that are very real. That's the kind of thing I was looking for when I started going through this pool of surprises. Like as a journalist, I feel like there are so many great true stories and you could tell them with narrative ability or the, just as lyrically, just as beautifully as you usually tell an imaginary story. And I think that he transcends all that. So, I mean, I'm not sure how to describe him. It's not quite journalism either. And the people are definitely minor characters. I couldn't imagine how you would edit it. It'd be interesting. He apparently left just an absolutely voluminous record at UConn. It'd be interesting to see the size of the notes that he had that he condensed down into this book, because I suspect it was just massive. When I first cracked it open, I thought it was going to be something in the vein of Travels with Charlie by John Steinbeck. Steinbeck says at the beginning of that book, I didn't really take any notes. This is all my memory of this trip after the fact. And Wandering Through Winter is clearly the exact opposite. He clearly has field notes for days because he has so much detail about every little bit of the landscape. It's interesting because oftentimes in journalism, you're given the advice to show, don't tell. Don't tell people this is important. Show them this is important. He does. He shows. We're talking about his subtle voice that comes out at times, but he's not telling you, you have to save America. <laughs> he's not telling you, you have to save nature from humanity. But he's showing you, and he's very, very good at showing you and finding those things that he thinks you should know and then showing them. I feel like he has like a sense of the narrative. Like he's got a message he wants to tell you, but he does a very good job of showing you instead of telling you. And so in which case, I think that those notes, I think were probably very, very important because he detailed everything he saw and then called it. Did you have a favorite place that he visited? In one of his other books, he's in Maine and he follows like a river and he finds an abandoned orchard he's talking about the migration of people from the East Coast out West looking for more land and family farms and the soil running out and things like that. But I think about that place all the time and I wonder where it is. And just that idea that somewhere out there in the woods is a farm where someone had a life and they planted an orchard and the orchard is still there. And another one in the spring, he talks about in Florida, there's a lake that has floating islands. I think about that one all the time too. One of the places that was fascinating and I forgot about it until you reminded me about it until I reread it is the diamond fields. There's a place in Arkansas where there was an ancient, ancient volcano, and it was the crater of the volcano. You know, the volcano is long since gone, but the actual crater of the volcano is centered on this field this farmer had. 
the soil is extraordinarily rich because it's basically like, you know, the volcano was erupting and then it stopped erupting and all the lava and everything tapped the volcano and then enormous pressure underneath it and everything cooled off. And but what it left was diamonds. And so there's like a field in Arkansas, which is like the size of any other field. And it's just an incredible source of diamonds. And when he goes there, it's a tourist attraction and it still is. You can still go. You pay a small fee and you can walk around and they plow the field up like every week or so and you can walk around like a rake or whatever and you can find diamonds and people found real diamonds and still find real diamonds and if you read the wikipedia page valuable diamonds like turn up i have some diamond stats the largest diamond found in this diamond field is the uncle sam and that was found in 1924 it's 40.23 carats i'm not super clear what a carrot is but someone will explain it to me it's big the Star of Murfreesboro, which was the one that had just been found when Edward Wintiel got there, that's 34.25 carats. And the Star of Arkansas was found in 1956, and that's 15.38 carats, and that is currently in a museum in Arkansas somewhere. I think another one that was a favorite was when he goes down to Matamoros, the very, very bottom of Texas. And it's a part of the country I've never been to, like the very, very south Texas border. And just, we talk about the border a lot. And he's there to look at birds. And it just absolutely sounds like absolutely gorgeous. I hadn't thought of it. We have so many things that we associate with the border. Beautiful bird sanctuary is not one of them, but it should be. I did read another book that won a Pulitzer in the 80s that's about birds, about like how they migrate. One of the things I learned from that was that in Texas, birds who were trying to avoid going over the water come down through Texas and various environmental things in the West and mountains and things force them to these. And so there's a fairly narrow band that birds travel through. At the right time of the year, you can see enormous quantities of particular birds that use that as their tradition. Have you visited any of these places? Certainly some of the ones in the Northeast you've been to, right? Some of them, he doesn't travel on these routes where you go. Like, I mean, if you're driving through New Hampshire, where I used to live, you go on 93 or you go on 95 from Boston to Maine. I think it's a product of the highways not existing at the time. I've been to some of the other places in the other books. I've been to the Everglades and there's a park in Wisconsin he talks about, which I've been to. I do think genuinely that after reading this book, it made me want to be outside more. His simple appreciation, the way he notices the birds and the way he notices these things. If I take a walk at night, I look for owls. And then once you see an owl, then you want to see more owls. I think it definitely has changed my perspective of what I would like to do and where I would like to go. There's this part that stood out to me that he and his wife stopped on a highway in Texas to look at some environmental feature and someone stopped and asked them what was wrong. And he was just insulted that they wouldn't think that he was just stopping to look at something beautiful. It's like a totally alien concept that you would stop and notice these things. And I mean, there are people who are that interested and who might know, you know, when you're driving on the highway and you pass something, you've got no idea that there's something special there. And there are definitely people who do, but I don't think there's many people who have the gift that he had for communicating it in a way that you want to know more. And I also feel like I haven't visited these places, but he describes them so beautifully. I also think it'd be like hard to experience it quite like he describes it. And I really, really enjoy the way he describes it. Russ, thank you for coming on and thank you for picking this book. It's really fantastic. I'm going to end by asking you the question that we ask everybody, which is to recommend two books for our audience. So one of the other books that I considered was The Zanzibar Chest. It's a memoir of a journalist who worked in Africa and in Bosnia in the 1990s, covering the various wars that went on there. And that's sort of like half the book. But the other half of the book is exploring his own history. Like he's white, his family is English, but his parents 
lived in Africa. They lived in the Middle East and in Africa. And he was born in Africa. And so he feels a sort of connection to Africa, even though he's not African. And sorting through all that and sorting through his own personal history and some of the things he saw as a reporter. I know another one, The Odyssey, which is a book that we all know. But there's a particular translation of it, which I read not so long ago. The translator is Emily Wilson. You and I in high school, I think, read The Odyssey. And you know, it was fine. And then when I read her translation, I was astonished. It was so beautiful. And she describes decisions she made about translations. And basically, a lot of the translations were done in the 1800s by very repressed, angry white men in Oxford, England. Even the ones that have been done since are done by people who admire people like that. She's a relative contemporary of us, sort of a modern person, and she's a woman, and she retranslated it. I think she's able to draw out some of the beauty in the writing. I knew the story, but I had never read it that well. And even though I knew the story, I was like absolutely glued to it. The scene where Odysseus comes home and murders all of the suitors in his palace. And it was genuinely chilling. It was like one of the times I was reading something and I found it genuinely chilling to read. And I think that that was like a sign of like how good the translation was. I never imagined that this ancient Greek stuff that I read in high school would be that riveting. Thank you, Russ. Thank you for coming. Thank you for being a guest. Before we let you go, where can listeners find you? Well, you can find me at motherjones.com. I write pretty regularly there. I'm on Twitter, at Russ Chema. Those are probably the two best places to follow me on a regular basis. My guest next week is Megan O'Giblin. We're going to be talking about Julian James's The Origin of Consciousness in the Breakdown of the Bicameral Mind. It is awesome, and you're going to love it. I absolutely loved this discussion. So tune in. That's my son, Coltrane. If you like this podcast, please rate and review it. It's very important. It really helps the show out. So if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, scroll down to the section where it says rate and review. Hopefully you're going to select five stars and maybe write us a nice review. Or if you don't like the podcast, write us a bad review. That's fine too. The best way to find out about Book Society is to go to the Book Society website, booksocietypod.com. Get on the mailing list. I'm going to send out a newsletter. Now, I mean, if you pulled over on the highway to look at something, I mean, you'd be like arrested. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>